Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. So just for the record, we hope that you enjoyed uh, our display or presentation of the Lion King of Judah. But just for the record, there's no way I'm coming up here to preach dressed like Mufasa. Like Superman? I can do that all day long, right? Preach up as here as Superman, because let's face it, it just kind of works for me, right? But Mufasa, I don't know, would you take me seriously if I dressed like that? So I'm doing Savannah chic instead is what I got going on here. So it does beg the question, what does Superman, Batman, Iron Man, or Lion King have to do with anything? And the answer is more than you think. When Jesus showed up 2,000 years ago, he had to figure out a way to demonstrate and express complex spiritual truths to common people. And so he came up with this idea of parables, and we all know what they are. And they're illustrations or parallels, and what he did was he chose cultural metaphors, and he used them as similes or metaphors to explain the kingdom of God. And he often began like this. He said, the kingdom of God is like. And then he used illustrations like seeds and soil and goats and sheep and uh, wheat and corn and wine presses and fig trees and wineskins. And what is the one thing all those illustrations have in common? They're all agricultural, right? See, you didn't know because you're not agricultural, most of you here. And so he did that because that was what his culture was, and they understood all of those things. And when we look at ourselves today, do we know what a fig tree is? Do we know what a sheep or a goat is? Do we really understand those things? Or maybe if Jesus came today, he'd have to use a whole bunch of different parables and parallels. And, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever heard this story, but it's fascinating. When they were translating the New Testament into the native language in the country of Papua New Guinea, they had a little bit of problem because, first of all, they had never seen a sheep because there's no sheep on that country. But secondly, there was no word in their language for sheep. And in fact, they only had one word in their language for any four-legged animal. They were all called, are you ready for this, pigs. And so the translators just didn't know what they were going to do with this. They had a hard time referring to behold the Lamb of God. No, behold the pig of God that takes away the sins of the world. And they couldn't do it. It just didn't seem kosher to them, right? And so when they, and they finally came up with calling it some sort of version of the sheep pig, it still didn't sound right. And so when I look at our crowd today and our people today, would people really understand it? Do people really know what a sheep or a goat or a fig tree is? And I mean, we've seen pictures of them, but most people I know have actually never seen a sheep in real life. And there's this story, this man, he's driving down the highway one day and he sees a whole flock of sheep and he stops his car and he gets out and there's this sheep herder and he says to him, I will bet you $100 to one of your sheep that I can guess exactly how many sheep you have in this field. So the man said, there's hundreds in this field. You're not going to guess it. You're on. It's a bet. So the man quickly scanned the flock of sheep like this and said, you have 921. He said, that is amazing. I'm a man of my word. Take one of them. So he went down, grabbed an animal, put it over his shoulder, started to walk away. And then the sheep herder said to him, I'll bet you double or nothing. I can guess what you do for a living. The man says, you're on. He says, you're an auditor for the Canada Revenue Agency. (laughs) And he said, you're right. How did you know? He said, put down my dog and I'll tell you. (laughs) 
So what we're going to be talking about today is, of course, this metaphor of the Lion King of Judah. And people have been asking this, what does the Lion King have to do with Easter? And the answer is everything. And I'll tell you why. The Bible specifically refers to Jesus as the Lion King of Judah. And you go, you'll find it in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. And it says, do not weep, for behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. And when you look at the story of the Lion King, I mean, think about it. You have Mufasa, he's the king, he's the father. And then, of course, his throne gets usurped by Scar. If Scar's not the devil, who is he? I mean, it's obvious he's the evil one. He's the one who usurps the throne, takes over. And, of course, we have to have Simba, the son of the king, come and save the day and release all these people or all these animals from captivity. If that isn't the Bible story, I don't know what is. And so people say, Pastor Mark, why are you always ripping off the Disney stories? To which I say, why is Disney always ripping off the Bible? That's what I have to say. So we have to give a little context to this. So what we have is we have the fact that the end of the book says that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah and he has prevailed. But where does that come from? What is the context for that? And we actually find it in the very first book of the Bible, which is the book of Revelation. And what we have is we have Jacob who had 12 sons. The 12 sons were the 12 tribes of Israel. And just before his death, he blesses each one of his sons. And what I want to read you today is what he said over his son named Judah. And so we're going to pick it up, Genesis chapter 49, verse 8, and it says this, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down and lies down as a lion and as a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him he shall be the obedience of the people. Three times this passage refers to Judah as a lion. And of course, we know this about the tribe of Judah. They were the royal line. They were the royal tribe. It says the scepter will not depart from your hand. We know this, that the the kings, starting with King David, King Solomon, and all the rest of them after them were all from the tribe of Judah. We know that Jesus was born in the tribe of Judah. Both his mother, Mary, and his supposed father, Joseph, were direct descendants of King David in the line of Judah. And that's why Jesus is called the root of David. That's why he is called the king of David. That is why he is called the king of Judah. He is in that line. And it tells us a few things. It says he will defeat his enemies. And it says he will lie down and who shall rouse him. And of course, that's a reference to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it was all prophesied. The lion king, it is the story of the Bible. Now, what I want to do in my message today is I want to point out actually all the Lion Kings of Scripture because there are more than one, and you'll see when I'm done here. And so here's the Lion Kings of Scripture. Number one, we have the Lion King of Heaven. Number two, we have the Lion King of Earth. And number three, we have the Lion King of Judah. So the Lion King of Heaven is, of course, the father. You know, we would reference that in the Lion King story to Mufasa. He was the king. He was the father. We know God as God the Father. But we also know him as the king of heaven. It actually calls in scripture him the king of heaven. And it actually calls him a lion. 
And it says that he roars from heaven. And it says his throne is in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. And when we pray to God, we pray to him as a father because he has revealed himself as a father. But that is so inadequate as to what his true nature and character is. And to truly understand who the king of heaven is, the lion king of heaven, you have to do a lot of work and a lot of research, and we wouldn't have near time to do that. I mean, for one thing, he's called a trinity, right? The triunity of God, three persons in one God. How does that work? People have tried to explain it and given, I think, grossly inadequate explanations of how that works. We'll find out when we get to heaven. And then there's the eternality of God, you say, though. What? The eternality of God, the fact that God is eternal, that he always has been, always will. He has no beginning, no end. And yet, even though God is eternal and never had a beginning, it always existed and always will, when we pick up our Bible and we go to the first page to the verse, verse, what does it say? It says, in the beginning, in the beginning. My question is, in the beginning of what? Can't be the beginning of God because he has no beginning. So what is it the beginning of? Well, it's the beginning of man's world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Think about it. God existed for all time throughout all eternity. And all we read in the Bible is not the history of God. That's actually the history of man. That is the history of the earth, really. The creation of the earth and the universe. It says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the sky. And then we read through the Bible. And at the end, we see the destruction of the earth. So all it is is a little sliver of time. All of it is is the history of man. It's not anywhere near the history of God. But let me throw one more little wrinkle. When I say in the beginning, in the beginning of what? You know what it literally is? It's the beginning of time. Literally time as we know it. How many remember what he said after? It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the next verse is, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And scientists now tell us that the, the universe is expanding at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second. And it has been for, for billions of years, they say. And it's 13.67 billion light years from one side to the other. And it's expanding at the speed of light. And then just about 100 years ago, Albert Einstein came along and he said, oh, by the way, you think that time is constant. People always thought time was constant because it's constant for us, right? I mean, I'm in one moment. I'm in the next moment. I can't go back in time. I can't go forward in time. I can only live in the vector of time. But Einstein comes along, messes with our brains, and he says, oh, by the way, time is relative. It's the speed of light that's the constant. God came and he created light. And when he created light, it actually produced the vector of time. And we live in time, but God doesn't. You say, what do you mean God doesn't? Go read the book. Go read the story. It says, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He doesn't say he's at the beginning and the end. He says he is the beginning and the end. And he also says this, I love this. He says, to God, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Either God's not good at math or there's something really different going on here. And here's what we know, and I'm not going to say more, much more about it, but God is not bound by time. We are. That is the creation that we live in. When he said in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth, he started the clock and we are in the vector of time. He doesn't live in the vector of time. And when you leave this earth, you leave the time dimension. And you know, we, we always have people say this. They say, well, you know, there'll be people waiting for me in heaven. I got news for you. There'll be nobody waiting for you in heaven. And I, that didn't come out right, did it? <laughs> that sounded pretty bad. 
But here's where I'm going with this. See, when we leave the earth, when we go to heaven, we become into the timeless state. And so, in fact, are you ready for this? We all arrive at heaven at the same time. You can think about that one. That was a freebie. You can, you can just go mow that for the rest of the day. But here's the point I'm making is that we live in this season of man, this time of man. God is the God of heaven. He created the earth. He put us in it. And then he did a peculiar thing. He put Satan in the midst of that thing. Now, this is the one thing. When you read the Bible, there's, there's not too much outside of that window of humanity. But Satan is one of them. And it tells us about it in Revelation chapter 12. And it says his name was Lucifer and he was in heaven and he, he and his angels battled, did war against Michael and his angels and he was cast out of heaven and of all places he sent him here. And then he puts Adam and Eve in the garden, makes this, this earth for us, puts Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, in this garden, in the midst of this earth, in the midst of this universe and he also has Satan. However he got here, he's here and all of his demons are here. And I, I don't know about you, but if you were doing this thing, would you have sent him here? Would you have sent this evil character and, and made man deal with this evil character? I wouldn't know. I would have just drop kicked him off the face of the universe. But the God had a different plan. You say, why? Well, here's the best explanation I can give you, and I think it's a pretty good one. The greatest gift that man has got from God, other than salvation itself, is free choice. God gave us all free choice, right? We can do whatever you want. You can choose to do whatever you want. And you don't really have free choice if you have nothing to choose from, right? If there's no other choices, then you don't really have free choice. And so what God did, because he wanted to give us this thing called free choice, he put a clear and distinct and opposite choice, someone evil, someone nefarious, someone malicious, and someone opposite. The antithesis of God was Satan. And so he put them both. They, he was here in the earth and he put Satan in the earth and he gave people this clear choice. Why? Why did he do that? Because what God wanted from us more than anything was he wanted relationship with mankind. He could have made us robots. He could have made us serve him. He could have made us love him. But see, you can't really compel another person to love you. Am I right about that? Men. Dear wives, can you compel them to love you? Try it. It won't work. I tried it. Didn't work for me. You say, what are you talking about? I asked Kathy to marry me twice. Did you know that? Yeah, first time she said no. And I said, is there someone else? She said, there's got to be. (laughs) She had other choices. And so what happens with this, what happens with, with choice is it allows us to have true relationship. And what God wants from mankind more than anything else is he wants relationship. And so what God did was he gave us this choice and sadly Adam and Eve made the wrong choice and they picked Satan, right? They obeyed him. Which brings us to the next king and it's the lion king of earth. And here's what we know about Satan and he is the scar character in the Bible. He's this, this counterfeit king is a better way of putting it. And here's what the scripture says about him. It says that you should be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. It doesn't say he is a lion. He says he goes about as a lion because he's a counterfeit lion. He's not really the lion king, but he has assumed that role. Why did he assume that role? Because what God did was God gave man the world. We know that from the Psalms. The Psalm says the heavens, even the heavens are the Lord, but the earth he has given to the children of man. And then what he did by obeying Satan is he gave the world to him. And so 
Consequently, the scripture refers to Satan as the God of this world and the ruler of this age. And he really truly is the lion king of the earth, whether we like it or not. I know it doesn't make sense. You think, isn't God still God? He's, he's the king of heaven. But the king of earth was man for a very short period of time until he gave it away. And you read this through the scriptures and you really realize that it's very clear that he is the lion king of earth, the counterfeit king. And I'll remind you of a really important story on this. See, if I was to ask you this, if I was going to say, what was the climax of the Easter story? Everyone would be able to give me the right answer. You'd say, well, that would be the death and the resurrection of Christ, which you would be correct. But there's actually a defining moment that sets that all up. Something that happened before that. Something that happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry that made all the difference in the world. And if you'll remember, it was in Luke chapter 4, and it was just after Jesus was baptized. And it says the Spirit of God drove him into the wilderness where he was for 40 days. And he prayed and he fasted for 40 days. And at the end of the 40 days, who showed up? You remember the devil showed up. And he tempted him in that last moment. And his first temptation was this. He said to him, if you are who you say you are, turn, the, turn these rocks into bread and eat. Now, was that a true temptation? Sure, it was a true temptation because A, he was hungry. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. And B, he probably did have the power to turn the rocks into bread. But he wasn't going to do it, right? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then there was a second temptation about throwing himself down and the angels, you know, catching them up in their, in their arms. And then the third temptation, this is where I'm going, was when he took him up to a high mountain. And it says he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And then he said, all these kingdoms have been given to me and all their glory and I give them to whomever I wish for their authority is mine. And then he said, bow down and worship me and I will give you all these kingdoms. Now, let me ask you a question. Was that real? Was that true? Did he have all the kingdoms of the world? He had to and he would have or it wouldn't have been a true temptation. Right? It wasn't a temptation if it weren't true. Now, of course, he would have lied about it, probably wouldn't have given it to him. I mean, Satan's always going to lie. But the, the temptation itself was true. And of course, Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan, you shall worship the Lord your God and, and only him. Had he bowed down, had he compromised and taken the kingdoms of the world through that route, we would have been under the domination of Satan for eternity. But he resisted him. So it is actually the crux of the Easter story where he said no to temptation. And see, this is something I want you to think about. I want to personalize this for a moment. One of the greatest tools and weapons in Satan's arsenal is temptation. We always think that, you know, Satan's running around killing, stealing, and destroying, and he has, does do that. And he ruins people, and he hurts people, and he puts sickness on people, and he brings violence and death in the world. All that's true. But his greatest weapon is actually temptation, isn't it? And what he does in temptation is he doesn't tempt, tempt you with something you dread. He tempts you with something you desire. And the very, very first sin of humanity, Adam and Eve, was a temptation. He tempted them in the garden with the, with the stupid fruit. For goodness sakes, if I'm going to give up the world for something, it better be something better than fruit, for goodness sakes. But see, the fruit was symbolic of something more. He says, you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The temptation was, you can be like God. It was something they desired. He tempted them. He taunted them. And here's what we find out about temptation, is that every one of us are vulnerable to it. You know, Oscar Wilde said this, I can resist anything but temptation. 
And it's kind of like all of us, aren't we? I mean, we all struggle with this thing. That's what James said. James pulls no punches. James chapter one, he says, every man is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own lusts. See, the, the real challenge we have in life in dealing with evil is actually temptation. Temptation, God, sorry, Satan going after the things that we desire. And we all have those temptations. Some of us every day, and when you're younger, it's as simple as a cookie. But when, it gets a little, when you get a little older, it gets a little more complicated, but it's still the things you desire. How many of you remember when you were in high school and you had a group of friends and they tempted you to do something? You knew it was wrong, but you did it anyway. How many of you remember that? Like six of you? Like seriously? <laughs> How many of you actually went to high school? How, another eight? <laughs> I don't know why I asked those questions. Uh, but but you, you know what I'm talking about. Most of you know what you're talking about. You've all done things that you knew were wrong, but you did them anyway because it was so enticing. And that's what happens in our world. Our world is a full of place of temptation. And the devil is still offering people the world. He's still doing it. And you've seen it. Now, probably every one of you will have a moment or several of them like this in your life where you're in a place of a business or an employment or whatever, and there's this opportunity for you to advance and to achieve something really spectacular. But there's a price to pay and you have to compromise your integrity or your character or your honesty or your virtues. And because what we want, we want it so desperately, we give in to that temptation. See, that's what Adam and Eve did. And that's what King David did. And that's what Samson did. And that's what Solomon did. And when it came to Jesus, he resisted because he was tempted, the scripture says, in all points, even as us, yet without sin. So I want to tell you a story. I've never, ever told this story before. And it's a, the moment where I got tempted, sort of like Jesus in my little world anyway, of being offered the king, kingdoms of this world. I'm going to tell you a story. So about 25 years ago, uh, we were a church of about 200 people, and we were on television. And the reason was we met in a television studio, so we actually aired our television program. Uh, we were on one station, MTN, out of Portage La Prairie, and we were just sort of bumping along at it, doing our little thing. And uh, we got a call one day from the biggest Christian broadcaster in the entire world, located in Los Angeles, California, and they called us up and they asked us to come down. And this particular broadcaster, which I'm not going to name, you can figure it out if you want to, but I'm not going to name them, was uh, in a hundred different nations of the world and had a, had a, a net worth of a billion dollars. It might have even been one of the biggest broadcasters, period, being in a hundred nations of the world, which didn't happen 25 years ago. And they called us up and they said, we would like to talk to you. We'd like you to come down. We'd like to be, you to be on our show. So Ernie, our producer of the show, and, and, my, and myself, they flew us down to California. They put us up in this hotel. It started really great. The hotel we were staying in was, had a convention going on that weekend of the NAP. It turns out the NAP was the National Association of Prostitutes. <laughs> yeah, I thought, this is off to a bad start. And, and so the next day, they picked us up and, uh, with this beautiful vehicle, and they drove us down to the headquarters of this uh, broadcaster in Costa Mesa. And here's what it looks like, or it did after. Look at that thing, it, it looks like a castle. And when you get inside, it, it actually wasn't quite built up that much when we got there, but it did eventually. But anyway, here's the inside of the building. It looks like a palace in Europe. I've only been in one palace, it was a Hofburg uh, palace in Vienna, Austria, and it looked just like this. 
And I thought, why does this place look like a palace? And why is there this gold and paintings and murals and all these chairs and things? It was crazy, ridiculous. I'd never seen anything like it. So when we went on the show, or I went on the show, and that was the first thing that happened. And uh, so I got into the studio, and there was all these, there wasn't one person in the room, and the, the seats were all empty. And so we started talking and doing the thing for the cameras. And they had a laugh track and a clap track. And so every time I said something even remotely funny, they, you know, they pushed the laugh button and laughter came. I, I kind of like that, frankly. And I'm thinking of getting one for here. <laughs> anyway, there's invisible people clapping, invisible people laughing. And uh, it was really super weird set. Looked like, again, like a palace. And so then we were invited to the president's office and we went into his office and I can only describe it this way as a throne room. I don't know how else to describe it. And there he was. You're not going to believe me when I tell you this. He was sitting on what I can only describe as a throne. And it was red velvet with gold arms and a gold back. And he was sitting on a throne. And there was another smaller throne beside it, which I assume was for the queen. But I think she was out getting her hair done because she looked like Tammy Faye Baker on steroids is what she looked like. And anyway, so... I didn't know what to do. You, you go into a, a throne room and there's someone on the throne like, do I curtsy? Do I bow down? You know, do I shake his hand? What do you do? Like, who is this dude anyway? So anyway, so I sat, I sat down and he starts talking. And this is what he said. He said, he said, Mark, he said, you know, we're on in 100 nations of the world. We're the biggest Christian broadcaster in the world. And he says, I want you to know that I can make a star out of you. And he says, you will be an international name and you will be famous beyond your wildest dreams and you're going to make more money doing this than you ever thought. And I'm going to take your show and I'm going to put it on air and it'll be airing all around the world. But then he said, but I need your help because I need you to be my man in Canada because the one nation we haven't been able to get into is Canada. And they said, there's some very bad people up there in Canada. And so I thought, what? He says, so I need you to be my man in Canada. You've seen the temptation here, right? I could be wildly famous and rich. And I mean, I am wildly famous. I'm just not rich. I already got that going for me. But so, so, so anyway, so I, thought, I didn't know what to make of this. Like, I, I didn't. Like, I didn't say, get thee behind me, Satan, because I wasn't sure quite who I was dealing with. And I, to be honest with you, I didn't know what was going on. The whole thing was so bizarre. I couldn't figure out why this guy was on a throne. I didn't know why he was making me this offer. And after the show, there was a, another guest, and he actually was a college professor, and he desperately wanted to go out for coffee with us. He said, I want to meet you guys for coffee. So we said, sure. So we went out for coffee. And this is what he said to me. He said, whatever you do, do not get involved with these people. These people are the Christian mafia. I said, the Christian mafia? I didn't know there was a Christian mafia. He said, well, there is, and it's them. (laughs) And he says, they will make you, and then they will destroy you. Whatever you do, don't get involved with them. These people are more powerful than you can ever imagine. And so anyway, here, it wasn't that I was, you know, hanging on and, you know, caught between this thing. I wasn't going to get involved with these people because they were too weird, who has a throne in their office? Who has their, their building laid out like a palace? I thought, these people are nuts. I don't want anything to do with them. But here's what happened. Uh, a few years later, there was a major, huge, disgusting, sordid scandal that happened. And I remember thinking to myself, boy, I'm glad I'm not part of that. 
And you see, God spared me. But here's the big question to you. How are we going to be able to resist temptation? Because we all have those moments where Satan comes a calling and he's going to offer you something and you have to decide what you're going to do. And only by the strength of the Holy Spirit are you able to resist. There's this story of this lawyer and uh, he gets a visit from Satan and Satan says, I got a deal to make with you. I'm going to make you the most wildly successful lawyer in the world. You're never going to lose a, certain, a single case. You're going to have fame and you're going to have fortune and you're going to have more wealth than you could possibly dream. But in exchange... He says, I want your soul and the soul of your wife and the soul of your children, the soul of your parents, the soul of your family, and the soul of all your friends. To which the lawyer thought for a moment and said, okay, so what's the catch? (laughs) Hear the laugh track? That was a laugh track. Hit that laugh track again. Can't hear anything. (laughs) Eh? Eh? You thought that was you. It wasn't you. Nobody was laughing at me. (laughs) So, so... So here's what we have. We have this, this situation where we have the Lion King of Heaven. We have the Lion King and King of Earth. He's come through the power of temptation. And then we have the Lion King of Judah. And again, it says, do not weep. For behold, the, the line of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. The root of David. He has prevailed. And here's what's sort of bizarre about this story. He comes as the son of God. The son, son of the King of Heaven. And he comes into the earth. And have you ever heard of a story where the victor defeats the enemy by dying? Isn't it usually the other way around? Isn't it usually the villain who dies? But in this story, we have the savior dying. And why is that so important? And and I'll tell you, here's what happened. If, If indeed the world belongs to Satan, which the scripture seems to teach that it does, and this is what it says in Romans chapter 5. It says, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. And by another man's obedience, many shall be made righteous. And the way that Jesus defeated Satan, he didn't go and knock him to the ground and do the ground and pound. All he did was obey God. And by obeying God, by, not res- by resisting temptation and not giving in to it, he actually turned the ties on all humanity. And here's the verse I want to share with you. And it's in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. And it's talking about Jesus. And it says, He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name above every name that is named. Why has Jesus got the name? Above every name that is named. Why is Jesus the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Why is Jesus' name exalted above the name of God, which it is? It's Jesus. It's the name. Because he and he alone came to the earth and paid the ultimate price for your sin. This thing, this predicament we were in, where we were caught and trapped in our sins and we were ensnared to the devil. He came and he paid this price. Let me tell you something. You will never know this side of heaven the price Christ has paid for your redemption. You will never know. And I know we can talk about it in church and I can paint a picture of him, you know, suffering at, at his crucifixion. I can talk about him bleeding and being beaten. And I can talk about the sins of the world being put on him. And I can talk about all the sickness of mankind, past, present, and future being put on his body. I could talk about him dying and going down to the very bowels of the earth and suffering, but it still won't do justice and really won't express the incredible price that he paid. And when you get to heaven and you walk through those pearly gates, you're going to go, oh my goodness, is this the price he paid for me? And the answer will be yes, and he would have done it for you if you were the only human on earth. 
And I have no way to really express that, but I'm going to tell you one little story in closing here that will really illustrate it. And it's a, it's a lion story. You're going to like it. So if you, ever, if you ever go to England, you want to go to the Parliament buildings, and in front of the Parliament buildings, there's a statue of Richard I. And here it is. It's a magnificent, stunning statue. Way back in the, in the 12th century, uh, King Richard, who is also known as Richard the Lionheart. And the reason he was known as Richard the Lionheart was not because he was such a great king, because he didn't spend very much time in England. He was actually a warrior. And he was the one who left England A.D. 1190, and he led the Third Crusade into the Middle East to liberate Jerusalem from the Muslims who had captured that place. And while he was gone for two years, what had happened during that time, and this part of the story, most of you know better than the other part, his brother, known as Prince John, usurped the throne and assumed leadership of England And the reason you know about him, because his arch nemesis, do you remember this, was Robin Hood. Yeah, that's where that Robin Hood, I don't know if Robin Hood's true story, but Prince John really is. And that whole part of it is, and what happened was in in his mind, Richard was missing in action. So he, like Scar, assumed the throne. When Richard, who was in the Middle East, hears about this, he makes his way back. They say, you better get back and take back your rightful place as the throne. But he was sailing in the Adriatic Sea and he was shipwrecked on shore and he had to do the rest of it by land. And he had an arch enemy in Austria by the name of Leopold. And so he disguised himself as a commoner, but they discovered him anyway near Vienna. And he was taken captive and he was held. And he was held in a castle for 14 months. All true story. And five years ago, Kathy and I were in that exact place. It's called Durstein, Austria. And here it is. Here's a picture. It's a beautiful, majestic place. And there is the beautiful village of of Durstein. And up at the top is the castle. And they had a tour up there. And they said, you can come up. It's just beautiful. Lots of Walkout Valley. It's one of the most picturesque, beautiful places in the whole world. And so they said, if you want to go on this tour, you can can climb with us. You have to be in good shape. It's almost straight up, half a mile. And uh, so about a dozen of us said yes. And so there we are. We're almost at the top. One guy had an angina attack and had to call the medics and carry him down. He didn't actually make it. We made it. We're young. We're fit. And so there's Kathy, you see that beautiful valley. And so then what she did was she took me, Kathy, and she locked me up in King Richard's prison. There I am. And she threw away the key. Remember, love is a choice. And uh, anyway, no, no, there's no lock in that. But I, I, I was in the very place in which King Richard was, was held. And it was just it, those moments where you're in these historic places, they do something to you, I'm telling you. And thinking he spent 14 months in this place. And so then what, what the Austrians did was they sent a message to England and said, we're holding him for ransom. And we want 150,000 marks, which is this extraordinary amount of money that would be hard to compare to anything today. More money than they had. So King John, or Prince John as was his brother, offered him 80,000 marks if they kept him. If they kept him, not give him back. And so Eleanor, their mother, John Richard's mother, went and emptied the royal treasury, the church treasury, and went to the people of England, and they put together the 150,000 marks in silver, and they paid the highest ransom that had ever been paid for anybody in all of history. More money, and so much money, like, how would you compare it? It was three times the annual income of England. Three times. This exorbitant amount. 
And then the, the best part of the story is this. So, so they release King Richard. He comes back. And guess what he did with his brother, John? He forgave him and made him the heir to the throne. He, can you believe that? Richard the Lionheart. But then what happened was Richard died. His brother assumed the throne. And their nephew, also known as Arthur, as in King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, Boy, this is all coming together for you, isn't it? Uh, he assumed the throne and, and deposed King, King John. So it's a crazy, crazy, crazy story. But here's what I don't want you to miss. That's the kind of ransom, a king's ransom that Jesus paid for you. More than could ever be calculated, more than you will ever know. An exorbitant amount of wealth was given to set you free. And that is what the word redemption means. Redemption means to buy back. It means ransom. But the end of the story is kind of exciting for us because Jesus paid the ultimate price. His price was his life. You'll discover in heaven exactly what that was. But then death could not hold him. And on the third day, he rose again, which is why we have a living God. You see, Christianity begins where religion ends with the resurrection. You see, Confucius is dead and Krishna is dead and Buddha is dead and Muhammad is dead. And guess what? Elvis is dead. But Jesus is alive because he is risen from the dead and he forever lives because Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and he will reign forever in your heart and in the universe. And he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Therefore, do not weep for the king has been aroused. Let's stand together. All right, I want to ask you all to bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment if you would. Because I know in a room this size, there'll be people who've never made that decision, never accepted what Jesus did on that cross for you. I know that I can't possibly ever fully express that price he paid, but you got a little bit of a snapshot today. He paid a king's king's ransom for your life and your redemption. And if you have never invited Christ into your life to be your Lord and Savior, I want to give you that opportunity today. And with every head bowed, with every eye closed, I'm not going to single you out. I'm not asking you, have you been to church? I'm not asking you, have you been baptized as a child? I'm asking you this. Have you made a definitive choice because he gave you free choice? Have you decided to resist the temptation of the devil and instead accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And if you have not done that, Your opportunity is now. Nobody is looking around. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. And if you'd like to make that decision so you know you have an eternity in heaven, I want you to just raise your hand right now. Just take a moment. Raise your hand. Let me see it. There's hands popping up around the room. Nobody's looking around. Between you and me and the lying king of Judah. Anybody else want to join these folks? Maybe you knew him in the past and you slipped away. Today's your day to come back. I want you to raise your hand. Make that decision. All right, okay, you can put your hands down. Let us pray together, shall we? Lord Jesus, thank you for the work of the cross. Yet you came to the earth, you paid the ultimate price, a price I will never really know for my redemption. You paid the ultimate ransom. But you not only died for me, you rose again on the third day, and you forever live to be my Lord old things have passed away. All things have become new. Today, I am a Christian. And you, the Lion King of Judah, are the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give him a shout, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God 
live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.